Our scripture lesson for this morning comes to us from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. Listen now for God's word to you. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wine strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations, and he will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces, and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him so that, we, so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Poetry, it is one of the most ubiquitous of all human expressions. Every society from the most ancient to the contemporary modern ones that we inhabit has had poets and poetry. Um, It is one of the uh, most important pieces of our lives together. One poet said that um, if we had a day without poetry somewhere in human history, that would have been the day that we invented poetry because there would have been such a great hunger and such a great need for it. That poetry is often the way that we express ourselves with those really deep and profound of human experiences. When we have that experience that often words fail to communicate, often we resort to poetry, to meter and verse. How many people have stood in in awe of the natural world, in awe of God's creation, even on a cold day like today, and they've tried to describe what they're feeling, and instead what's come out is poetry. How many poems have been written by those who have fallen in love, that experience of romantic love? Think about that the way we describe it sometimes, that butterfly feeling in our stomach. That itself is a, a poetic image. And for communities who experience oppression and marginalization, it is the poets who often try to make sense of those experiences. Think of Langston Hughes' poem, A Dream Deferred. And for our ancestors in faith, who had these profound experiences with the divine, it is often poetry as the way that they communicate those experiences. A third of the Bible is poetry. And it's not just human beings who use poetry, but often the way that God is depicted as speaking to us is through poetic words. That that doesn't always make God the clearest of communicators, right? leaves us with a little room of trying to figure out what exactly God is saying, but God, it seems, often communicates to us through through poetry. God speaks to us in this way, in these poetic phrases. And um, often in the Bible, we're going along through these narratives, and suddenly the narrative is interrupted as someone breaks into poetry, either God or human beings. Um, And really, this makes sense. If poetry is the way that we make sense of those deep and profound human experiences... What is more deep and profound than an encounter with God? That that makes sense that why that poetry be a significant part of the Bible, because the Bible, I don't think, is mostly about, it's not mostly about dispensing knowledge or facts about who God is, as much as the theologians and biblical literalists want it to be that. The Bible, I think, is mostly about drawing us into an experience of God, to help us to feel as if we were there ourselves. And what better way to do that than poetry. And let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. So this example comes from a group called The Bible Project. 
Uh, just a little advertisement for them. Uh, the Bible Project is a great little group that does these quick little videos that gives you overviews of biblical themes, summaries of entire books of the Bible. So if you're ever wanting to know more, if you're ever sitting around and you're bored, um, check out the Bible Project. They'll give you some information on things maybe you were wondering about. And so in their video on biblical poetry, uh, they talk about the story of the Exodus, one of those linchpin stories in the entire Bible. The Exodus, the people of God, the Hebrews are enslaved in Egypt, and through Moses, God works to free them. There's, uh, it takes a little bit of time because Pharaoh resists all of that. There's the plagues in Egypt. And finally, Pharaoh relents and releases the Hebrews from slavery. And as they make their way out of Egypt, they come up against the Red Sea, this body of water, and so they are kind of trapped and stuck there. But to make matters worse at that point, Pharaoh has decided he's changed his mind he wants to re-enslave the Hebrews, and so he sends his army, and he comes to re-enslave them. So there they are, trapped between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's pursuing army. And that's when God does something miraculous. He works through Moses, and the Red Sea is split into two, and the Hebrews walk through to the other side. We know the story, right? We learned it in Sunday school. And there are ways of communicating and talking about that story. Uh, one of the ways is to simply tell the story, to simply narrate it for us. And that's what the writers of Exodus do. In Exodus 14, it simply says, The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. Great. We know what happened. It's like reading a newspaper article, which is not in and of itself bad, it tells us the information of what happened. But again, I, th I don't think the biblical authors are just interested in telling us what happened. They want us to kind of experience it as if we were there, to kind of draw us out of our current moment and place us within a different plane of existence. And so in the very next chapter, they retell that same story of the Red Sea being split, but they tell it poetically. And it says this, At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the flood stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. See how different that is? So, they, you stole my joke, thank you. <laughs> what I was going to say is I don't think God literally has a nose and blew God's nose and the water is split in two. <laughs> Only at the nine o'clock you can do that. <laughs> Did you get an advanced copy? <laughs> but that's, that's my point, though, right? It creates a picture in our heads, right? You, I mean, you already have, your imagination is already going, and that is exactly the point, that our imagination is going. We start to imagine things a little bit differently and sort of experience ourselves as if we were there. Uh, there's a poet who says that poems hold the mysteries of the present and the dreams for the future. And if poems hold the mysteries of the present, then it makes sense that this is the way that we would speak about God poetically. Even when we're not writing formal poetry, I think all of our language about God is necessarily poetic. It's metaphorical. It's a way of helping us to visualize and understand that, which is sort of always beyond us. And if poems hold the dreams of the future, then it makes sense that the Hebrew prophets would speak almost always in poetry that almost the entirety of Hebrew prophecy 
is poetry. And that's exactly what we find here this morning. We have this beautiful, grandiose vision from the prophet Isaiah of us going up to God's holy mountain. And there's a a vision of a a feast with all kinds of good food, food with marrow, wine that is strained clear. I always seem to pick these passages that talk about food, don't I? Um, And as we get this image, we start to, I think, imagine the Thanksgiving tables we're all going to be sitting around later this week, right? Filled with, with turkey and mashed potatoes and stuffing and my favorite part, the wide assortment of pie, right? We start to imagine this extravagant menu, but even more extravagant than the menu is the guest list. All the nations of the earth come streaming towards God's holy mountain. All peoples, regardless of their race or class or gender or sexual orientation, all people come streaming towards God's holy mountain, and there they get to enjoy that feast. It is a a beautiful, idealistic, soaring vision of what could be. And it's interesting to me where it's placed in the book of Isaiah, where where this little vision of God's holy mountain is placed with a narrative structure of Isaiah. Because we're right in the middle of this little three-chapter section of the book of Isaiah known as Isaiah's Apocalypse. So Isaiah has been kind of depicting the world like the vineyards are ready to be dried up. God is ready to pour out destruction and desolation on the earth. It's kind of a a difficult image for us to see. But we shouldn't be too surprised when the prophets or biblical authors use apocalypses. It's a very common theme throughout the Bible. And it's not because the the prophets or whoever is writing about them are are kind of the directors of a disaster movie that's going to come out in theaters later on. That's not what they're interested in. Apocalypses are often ways of talking about what is broken and struggling and painful about the present. Think about an apocalypse in the Bible sort of like a dystopian novel, like uh, The Handmaid's Tale or 1984 or The Hunger Games. They're often set kind of somewhere in the future, right? But they're always about addressing something that is wrong in the present. You know, all the prophets spoke in the midst of crisis. You know, and Isaiah's crisis was the fact that the Assyrian Empire is right on the doorstep, right on the doorstep of his nation, ready to conquer them. And so there's this this political problem, there's this web of international alliances that Isaiah has to navigate through. And his task is really to speak hope to his people in the midst of what feels like an apocalypse. You know, we shouldn't be too shocked by apocalypses anymore. I think that for all of us, one of the things that's happened in the last couple of years is that none of us are unaware of the pain and the suffering that exists in our world. Even if it's not one that we experience ourselves, we are aware of the struggle that exists all around us. And certainly we could say the last few years have been a little bit of an apocalypse, right? Uh, With the pandemic that we've all lived through, the end of the world as we knew it, as the song goes, and finding ourselves kind of thrust into a whole different reality where we're still trying to figure out and get our footing in the midst of it. We, we know about apocalypses. We know what it's like to, to see those who are struggling with hunger or in any kind of need. We're packing meals later today because there is that need around us. We, of course, have made it through a, another contentious election cycle, right? With a nation that's already divided against itself and an election day that went on for an extra week while we still counted votes. We know about the warning signs of a planet that's in distress. We know what it's like to experience an apocalypse, those difficult realities. And that's why we need poetry 
like this. That's why we need visions like this one Isaiah casts for us, ones that are, are placed right in the middle of what feels difficult and what feels hard about our lives. These, these poems that can rise us above the current moment, that can ground us in hope, that can keep us from falling into despair. Soaring poetry like this can save us. I'll never forget when my son Axel was less than 24 hours old. Um, the nurse came into the room to do her regular checkup, as they, they do. They wake you up way too often when you have a baby. Um, she had just come in the room to do that, and um, she left rather quickly and then came back in kind of quickly. And when she came back in, she sat down on the bed, and at that point, we kind of knew something wasn't quite right. And she said that Axel's breathing was rapid and irregular, and so they needed to take him to the nursery to do some more monitoring on him. And so before I knew it, Axel was in the nursery with monitors hooked up to him. They had brought in this big infant x-ray machine, which looks way more intimidating than what it actually does. And they're taking x-rays of his chest, and they had found fluid on his lungs. Um, they were a little concerned that maybe he had some meconium in there, which would have been a really serious issue. Um, and so I knew this wasn't going to be a short thing. Um, and what they said was that, that Axel had the fluid on his lungs, and they were trying to figure out what to do next. Um, the conversation had turned from when were we going home to are we going to have a stay in the NICU? Is Axel going to go to the NICU? And for us in northeast Missouri at that time, that meant an ambulance trip 90 miles away to the closest NICU around. All of that excitement, all of that joy of becoming a new parent comes crashing down in a moment like that. Um, and so we sat with him through the day. Neither one of us wanted to leave. We went, tried to go to bed that night. It was a fitful night of sleep. And we woke up that morning. We were just plumb exhausted and um, and one of the nurses said to us, you got to take care of yourselves. You can't just sit. We, we, can, we can take care of them. Go get some breakfast downstairs in the cafeteria. Nothing's going to happen in the next half hour. And so we did. And in our way into the uh, cafeteria, we stopped first in the chapel. And when we stopped in the chapel, we found this image, this painting. Um, this is called The Invitation. And you can see what's depicted by Isaiah, that feast of well-aged wines and food with Merrill, that joy, that excitement. And you see, sitting there in the darkness, a man who seems to be going through his own apocalypse and being invited in to join the feast, invited in to, to experience the healing. And, um, you know, this image saved me in that moment. Um, in, my, in the midst of what felt like my own apocalypse, um, this image gave me hope. You know, it didn't fix my problem, Right? Axel was still being monitored. He still went to the NICU, and he's fine now. I'm reminded of that every time he's too loud. But, um, <laughs> but that image saved me in that moment. It gave me hope. It grounded me in hope. And that's exactly what I think Isaiah tries to do for us. In the midst of those moments where life feels difficult and hard, he tries to give us hope. He tries to help us to see a different possibility. You can take the image down now, Sandy, if you want. Um, he tries to, to give us a, a different sense of what is possible. He gives us this poetic image, this grandiose and idealistic image of all the nations of the earth streaming towards God's holy mountain, not with ways of devising more weapons to destroy each other, but with, with a means of trying to find healing of all people coming to God's holy mountain to enjoy the good things of God, that the, the good things of God are available not just for those who are wealthy or powerful or privileged, but available for every person without criteria. And on that mountain, Isaiah says, the shroud that is cast over all people. There's a poetic image for you. 
the shroud that is cast over all people will be removed. I think poetry like this creates a sort of longing in our hearts, a desire in our hearts, a a longing for it to be true. But that is exactly what can be so frustrating about lofty and idealistic poetry like this, is that it creates this longing, but it doesn't answer that longing for us. It creates a a destination, but it gives us no roadmap on how to get there. It, It gives us a vision, but it gives us no action steps on how to arrive there, that we want to get to God's holy mountain, but we soon realize that the road to God's holy mountain has not yet been constructed. And so we can easily throw our hands up and say, that's a nice image, Isaiah, but we all live in the real world, don't we? And I think to that, Isaiah would remind us that he too lived in the real world. He knew struggling and pain and the difficulty of the present, and that is exactly why he gives us this image. To, let us, to help us to see a different possibility in the midst of struggle and pain and, and hardship and all of those things. That we can get to God's holy mountain. But it's not going to just fall from heaven. It's not going to just arrive by some inevitability. It's not going to happen randomly. That, that God's holy mountain only arrives as there are people like you and I who see this vision who are willing to create it as we build the road towards God's holy mountain. That the road to God's holy mountain is constructed by those who seek peace in the world, not just the absence of tension and conflict, but by those who seek to address those things that deeply wound us. That the road to God's holy mountain is built by those who give bread to the hungry and a cup of cold water to those who are thirsty, the, the, the road to God's holy mountain is constructed by those who seek to address systems of injustice and oppression, the things that, that create and cause human need in the first place. The road to God's holy mountain is constructed by every act of love, every crossing of the boundaries that have been erected in our world. The road to God's holy mountain is constructed by those who seek to forgive and to not hold on to the grudges and the pain of the past. We need lofty poetry like this because it helps us to see the world differently. It reminds us of what is possible. We need lofty poetry like this because it reminds us that we, of what we are called to do and who we are called to be, that we are the ones who build the road towards God's holy mountain. We need lofty poetry like this because it may, in fact, be the thing that saves us and saves the world. Thanks be to God. Amen.